Um, so we, we, we are actually going to come close to finishing verses 1 through 7 this week. So it'll be uh, multiple sermons out of 1 through 7, but we're going to come close to finishing. And then next week, we will proceed past verse 7 and handle the fallout between Cain and Abel. Uh, but I, hopefully, we've been served. By being able to read the text well now about the Cain and Abel episode that we're going to cover this morning, now we're going to look at the event of the sacrifice and the fallout in the first portions of chapter 4, and then we'll look at the response that Cain has um, next week. But understanding the parental backdrop or the parental backstory or the familial context for the Cain and Abel episode, I think better equips us to understand what is unfolding here between Cain and Abel exactly. Again, you you remember uh, at this point, I I don't know the ages of of Cain and Abel in this episode. I don't know the ages. Um, The best we could uh, consider is that they're older at this point. Uh, They're not not children. They're they're not... um, you know, uh, it's hard to say. One um, uh, biblical archaeologist and, and Old Testament uh, scholar, who's, uh, by the way, just kind of a noteworthy maybe thing, he's young earth. So I don't know how this would affect your view of, of, of exactly how he's calculating the days and, and so on and so forth. But he, he marks from the genealogies back. He's kind of reasoned his way generationally back to suggest that this event between Cain and Abel took place around 105 um, so kind of that can maybe, maybe you can wrap your mind around that. Maybe, maybe not. That, that, that's kind of where he's placing it, somewhere about that amount of history that's taking place. That would place him somewhere, you know, middle age. Of course, not in this day and age. Um, I don't think you'd be middle-aged at 40 when you live to whatever, 600 years old or whatever. So, But uh, the idea is they're not kids, and, and then when, when we look at later at the, at the kind of uh, unique situation where Cain is expelled from the community of faith. Um, now, you don't have to come next week. I just gave it away to you. But uh, the idea that Cain is expelled, um, he's sent out and he has a wife. He's given a wife. So that then, from the idea of like, where'd the wife come from? Uh, then you're moving it back into the idea of at this point in time, at the sacrificial point of ceremony, there is uh, very present, is very likely going to be Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, and apparently some sisters, is who would have been the family at this sacrificial time. I mean, that's the very likely the woman that is sent off with Cain is a sister. Um, So remember that the exclamation at the very beginning, the exclamation uh, of of Eve toward Cain, I have a deliverer, that this idea that he's going to be the man. And then the perpetuation of what I would argue would be favoritism toward him through the text, all of that colors his coming to the sacrifice and his response afterward. Now, um, that's kind of just looking at it parentally or familially in the character or the lack of character development in the man Cain. Um, The patterns in his life. As I said last week, habits sown uh, is character reaped. So so you you look at the life of Cain and the habits that he had sown. And that's the character that's reaped when his sacrifice is rejected. You see this explosive character. Character. Because of habits that were sown. Or maybe we could say it the other way. Habits were not sown. Therefore, a, a yucky character. 
when do you then look at it theologically, not just practically or familially between Cain and Abel, brothers, mom and dad, Adam and Eve, and sister siblings, perhaps, within the context. But you look beyond that and you think theologically about the text. So you have a practical nuts and bolts. You're working through the text. Here's the people. Here are the events. This is what's taking place. And Cain seems to be just a bit of, of, of uh, you know, a jerk. So, so then you, you say, okay, well, beyond that, what's theologically being told here? How is the narrative functioning in the Bible? Well, from Genesis 3, you have this prophetic statement, right? That I am going to place enmity between you and, and you. These two groups are going to emerge that will have intense enmity between one another. This is the first episode of that theologically that you see by the time you get to chapter 4. The the word of the Lord is coming to fruition between Cain and Abel. This then sets out theologically two strands of offsprings. There will be the offspring of Cain. And we'll track that next time uh, somewhere down the line. We'll see that, again, it's Cain who is expelled from the community of faith. And, and, and then Cain, we see a bit of his genealogy that takes place in the rest of chapter 4. It doesn't tell us specifically what happened to Cain individually as a person, what his end was. We can guess, and maybe we'll save that for another time, but we can guess what maybe became of Cain. But we see evidence of his family seed or offspring merge. And then it's the, the, then the answer, I'm getting way ahead of myself. I just need to move on back into this sermon because, see, you're all going to quit coming. Um, I have to save something for later. But the answer to Cain's development is Seth. Because, again, there's going to be two offspring families. There's going to be the seed of the promise, and there's going to be this, the, the seed of enmity. And these two are going to clash and war throughout redemptive history. And it's beginning here, episode one, with Cain and Abel. So think about it now, of the event now. So we have Cain, and we have a portrait of his character. We kind of have a sense of who he is. This sense of maybe entitled uh, about Cain, this sense of privilege, this sense of a lack of discipline, and a lot more praise. And, and that kind of character now is coming to the event that now we take that character and it helps us work through the event of the sacrifice. Look at the text with me just to see it all once again. Once we get to Cain, a worker, verse 2, and Cain, a worker of the ground. So you have Abel and Cain. Now we know that these are men, not, not children, not teenagers. These are men. That's where we fast-forwarded to this point. Verse 3, in the course of time, this is going to be what's going to help us understand and reveal the character of an upbringing, of the way that he behaved, of who he is as a person. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Right? So it's due season, it's due time, it's time for liturgical worship, it's time for offerings to be brought for God to be honored. And this is what Cain's first move is. He brings fruit of the ground. Verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. And of their fat portions. Okay, so, so that, that's where we're at right now. At this point, is simply um, the, the bringing. Now, if you read the text and, you, and you've heard the Sunday school story, then you know what's about to take place. But follow it with me in the text and have your reading glasses on. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. No. If we simply stopped right there and we didn't parse this out, which we will do for the next few moments, but if we didn't parse it out, perhaps a simple cursory reading is all we perform, then we would perhaps at this point, as good readers, be a bit troubled or even a bit confused. Again, think about it just for a moment. With favoritism looming so largely in the background between the Cain and Abel story, that there's so much favoritism being shown here to Cain, and then, then you have, oh yeah, there's Abel. We may now wonder, at the moment of sacrifice or liturgy, as they come to worship God, is favoritism what's taking place now here? Between not just Adam and Cain, Adam and Abel, but now between God and Cain, God and Abel. Is this a, a, a demonstration of simple, what we then say, divine favoritism? We have, we have the flesh familial favoritism going on, no doubt. Here he is, here's them, this is, how it's, this is how the dynamic is working out. Is that what we have now? Both men come, both men bring sacrifices. And one is accepted and one is rejected. What's going on? And maybe we just walk away from it, like, well, we just don't know. Something mysterious took place between these sacrifices, and one was received and one wasn't. Maybe we otherwise look at it and say, it's just simple uh, favoritism is shown. Uh, and, and now uh, Abel's getting what uh, was coming to him because uh, Cain was always getting away with it. In fact, one essay, um, I, I won't get too far into it, so I've boiled it down to you just shortly. So please just kind of hear these two paragraphs coming out of a longer essay written for the Journal of Biblical Archaeology. It says it this way, and perhaps this is how we would think of it if uh, we don't now proceed to have it debunked. Think about it this way. He says, quote, how can we understand this favoritism? This is a, a, an essay in the Journal of Biblical Archaeology speaking back on the events of Cain and Abel. He says, quote, how can we understand this favoritism? What did Abel do so great, so beautiful, or praiseworthy worthy, as to merit the divine sympathy denied his brother? Do you, did you see, we're now, we, we now added another category to the dynamics. Did you see there was, there was inserted in there a word called merit? This is the pressing question for the author. What did Abel do so great, so beautiful, so praiseworthy as to merit the divine sympathy denied to his brother? Cain, innocent victim of unprecedented discrimination. How can we not wonder about his fate? Unprecedented discrimination. The article concludes this way. He says, quote, as always, the Midrash comes to rescue our attempts to fill in the gaps left by the biblical text. Midrash being, you, you probably know, but just to, to key in, when he says, as always, the Midrash comes to enable us to read, better read the text. Midrash is um, Jewish commentary on Old Testament texts. Very old, very ancient. Uh, I think some of the earliest manuscripts of Midrash documents is from like second century. So when you're saying Midrash, so he says, we're confused about the biblical text. Great, we have the Midrash over here. That is the, the journals, the commentaries on the text that help illuminate the text to us. So he says this, as always, the Midrash comes to the rescue in our attempts to fill the gaps left by the biblical text. He says this, and this is the last piece of the argument. Listen here, he says, there we learn 
by, by commentary on the text, because the text is kind of confusing, but commentary on the text, there we learn that God would have preferred Abel's gifts. They were of choice or quality, end quote. So what we, we have to ask the question um, in reading that, is that what we learn here? Do, do you see, again, the conclusion of the, 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 the breakdown between Cain and Abel and God is simply this. God preferred Abel's gifts. They were of choice or quality. And, and so let me ask it maybe in, a, in, a, in another uh, in a, a question that I'm asking you now. So, so I, you know, everyone has got to answer this in their brain right now. Let, let me ask you this then question, because it necessarily follows, if that is the case. Is this, is it ever possible to purely merit or purely purchase divine sympathy. That, that, that's what Abel is doing here. We learn that from Midrash. We're like, oh, we need Jewish scholarship to help us understand the biblical text. There's a bunch of gaps here. It's really, it's really kind of weird. It's cryptic. They both do the same thing, and then one of them is favored. What did he do to merit such favor? Well, he brought the choicest gifts. God liked his gifts. Therefore, he was received. So I'm asking you, are we received because of the gifts we bring? Is it ever possible to purely merit or purely purchase, as in the case of Abel, divine sympathy? Now, I've given you maybe two seconds to answer it, but I know that everyone answered accordingly because we're Protestants. The answer has to be no, not at all. Again, I qualify on there a very important piece that will take us days to splinter out, and I don't have days, the clock is ticking, but I qualified it there by purely. Can you purely merit? The answer is no. In fact, this is what I say to you just a moment ago, is at the heart of a Protestant, indeed, even more so, a Reformed theology and practice. We teach, we confess, very carefully, please hear me. We teach and we confess. You profess this as a Protestant. You profess this as a Reformed Christian. You profess this as uh, mostly uh, uh, thinking evangelicals. You, you, you profess this, that a person does not become righteous before God as a result of a righteous work. That, that's, that's, that's at the heart of your theology. That's the heart of your belief that ascends and rests and terminates on Christ Jesus. That, that, that is why we're here on Lord's Day. Because we profess that, that, that a person does not become righteous before God, as in the case of Abel, as a result of a righteous work. 
In fact, uh, I want to uh, read for you what we have already covered to get together multiple times here over the years at Redeemer. You've said it. I've said it. We've said it together to encourage one another in it. And that is the Heidelberg question 60 is this. The Heidelberg Catechism asks you this. How are you righteous before God? Would you then insert by a righteous work? You wouldn't. And neither was Abel. It's not like he was back in the Old Testament because they were. Post-Reformation now we're not. No. The gospel has been the gospel since Genesis 3. It's the same for Abel as it is for you. And, and it is this, how then are you righteous before God? The answer of Heidelberg Catechism, again, of which we would absolutely affirm as a good and faithful summary of the teachings of Holy Scripture, the answer is this, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, I have indeed kept none of them. I am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only by mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I had had nor ever committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. How does he do so? It concludes this way. In as much as I embrace such a benefit with a believing heart. You see, we are righteous. Abel was considered to have regard from God by the same instrumental means. Faith that terminates on Christ. But further, if you, if you consider your life lived before God as a Christian in, in the role of good works and, and the event also with Cain and Abel, even if a work on your part, something that you are performing or you are doing, were to be considered righteous before God, have you been mindful that that work too must be pardoned by God's mercy from all of its failings and all of its sinful weakness? Even your best works are only received by mercy. They must be pardoned because you have performed them. That is precisely what is being revealed here. And and I want to show you that, again, uh, we would maintain that all of Scripture and throughout all of time, man is justified by grace alone through faith alone. And that's precisely what we see. Look at the text and notice the ordering. Now you've got you've to see how this is being parsed out because it's not something I'm trying to impose upon the text. That, oh, here we go again. More Reformed theology, more Protestant thoughts right on top of the text. Let's just see. No, 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 no. See it with me. See it with me. Follow its bolts and its nuts right through the text. And indeed, what emerges out of the text is faith alone. 
Um, so here we go with the text. Notice the ordering, verse 4. And, and now we're reading a little bit more carefully. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard. Do you see it? Do you see it right there in the text? There's an important uh, con- conjunction there. Um, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Do you see so carefully that in the context of the sacrifice, God had regard for Abel as an individual? And then only then does he pardon Abel's offering so as to make it acceptable and good. Did you see that? He has regard for Abel and his offering. Hebrews 11.4 would make this even more clear. So again, um, you remember Hebrews 11 is that chapter of what would be deemed the the hall of faith or the the hall of faith. And and, and right at the beginning of Hebrews 11, it says that we have a cloud of witnesses. Witnesses to what? To witness to the Christian life. Witnesses to orthodoxy. Witness to a life that has faith that ascends and it rests and terminates on God. And in, this, and in our clarity in this age, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, faith's terminal point, not an instrumental point, a terminal point is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a lot of people for, that are a hall of witness to this. And then it begins to list Old Testament texts. Where's the cloud of witnesses? In the Old Testament text. It's not the theater that we're running and everybody's watching us and we're looking up at them and they're looking down at us and we're giving them one of these on good days and then we're kind of doing this on bad days because the cloud of witnesses is seeing. We, we possess an entire cloud of witness, piece by piece, story by story, narrative by narrative in the Old Testament text that speak to us about the singularity of faith and the life of God's people. It wasn't different for Abel than it is for you. Hebrews 11, by the time you get through chapter 11, verse 4, specifically keys in on Abel to make sure that we're reading the Old Testament text to our prophet, that we're reading it correctly. Verse 4 of chapter 11 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. There's our New Testament commentary on our Old Testament text. It was by faith that he did this. That's why the text reads in the Old Testament text, God had regard for Abel, and his deeds that followed for Abel. Why? Because Abel believed. Listen to Hebrews 11.4. It just goes on for two more kind of phrases. It says, by faith, we know the essence of what Abel is doing here in Genesis 4. God has regard for it. Why? Because it's by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Now, carefully think about how, what, what the, the text of, uh, of Hebrews 11.4 is very clear. He is commended uh, 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 through which he was commended. Through what? Through the sacrifice. That is what we just read in the uh, essay by the uh, Old Testament scholar there. He was commended because he brought choicer goods. These are better than those. I like good gifts. Thank you for them. I like you. That's how he's reading the text. 
How can we know? What is this favoritism? How dare he treat Cain like that? Well, he brought better stuff, and he likes good stuff, so he likes the person who brings good stuff. But see, that, the text of Hebrews 11.4 is making clear. He was commended righteous by what? The sacrifice? No, it's very clear. The reference is his faith is what commended him. Let me read it for you one more time. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which? Through what? Through his faith. He was commended as righteous. How do we know that we're getting the referent right? Because the final phrase of the verse says this. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Do you see? The exchange of the gifts, the commodity that was brought, is secondary to the commendation. How do we know that God, com- uh, uh, I was going to say condemned, and that's the wrong word, commend. That's tricky. Um, how do we know that God condemned him? No, commended him for his faith. Again, because by faith, Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, through the faith. How does he know he's commended? Because God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. This is the story of Abel, a man of faith, a a faith that he so richly possessed that God commended him as a man of faith. And because of that faith that terminated on God, he accepted the gift. The same is true of the order of the text with regard to Cain. If we parse it out carefully, look at the text then as it follows into Cain. Um, you see the, gra- the, the structure of the sentence is the same. And the Lord had regard for Abel uh, uh, and his offering. But for Cain, individual, and his offering, the instrument that he brought, he had no regard. Is it just that he had no regard for his offering? No. It's clear in the text. For Cain. And his offering that he brought. But for Cain, he had no regard. Again, God took no pleasure in Cain as an individual. Because he was devoid of faith. He's the contrast to Abel. That's what the text is about. This one who possesses faith. And that faith assents. And that faith comes to trust upon and rest upon God as its sole object. This is the man Abel. And its direct contrast is a life that is devoid of faith, that doesn't assent and just simply does whatever is required to get through the situation. That's the man Cain. And for that type of life, God has no regard. And so consequently, he took no pleasure in the offering. It's consequential, the relationship. Cain very likely, if we put it back in the context of the favoritism, or perhaps the cockiness, the bravado, the sense of privilege, Cain very likely brought the offering in belief that as the favored son, he simply would be favored before God. I've always been the most important thing. Very likely I always will be the most important thing. Think about that with our little ones. Again, it's just a footnote, but an important one. 
are we teaching them that they are the most important person in the room in any given circumstances regarding our entire family apparatus? If we are, it's very unlikely that they'll return to being less than the most important person in the room as they age. So also, um, when we think of Cain and the idea of a life of sacrifice in our own lives, um, uh, we read in Hebrews 6, or Hebrews 11, the same text, only further down. You remember that passage in Hebrews 11, uh, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what we have here with Cain. Abel is, is an example of a man who possessed it. And if you work down through the text of Hebrews 11, by the time we get through a couple of episodes, and I think it's shortly right after Abel, the statement is made that without faith, you see, it is virtually impossible to please God. Or we could go to Paul in Romans 14 who says, whatever proceeds apart from faith is sin. This is the issue between Cain and Abel. And this is the issue with us. How are our works to be received by God? They must be pardoned. The only virtue in them is the faith that inhabits them. Luther, that is Martin Luther, comments this way, quote, This passage is an outstanding and clear proof that God does not have regard for either the size or the quantity or even of the value of the work but simply for the faith of the individual. That's staggering. Because how often our actions proceed apart from faith? How often do we set about one of these kind of maneuvers in our own lives? He then says this, and I I conclude with Luther's comment. He says, similarly, by contrast, God does not despise. Listen to this. This This is fantastic. God does not despise the smallness, the lack of value, or the lowly nature of a work either. But his sole concern is the person's lack of faith. It's not measured in its grandeur externals in its volumes and in its quality. It's measured by the presence of faith. This This endeavor is indeed after your glory. It is for you. Notice then the events that transpire in the text, and you're, you're quite familiar with them, but let's just walk through them just briefly. Verse 5 and uh, verse 6, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. Again, if we, if we read it in the context of his life lived to this point, that would kind of be a normal triggered response from Cain, we would imagine. Um, he's been rejected. God had zero regard for what he just did. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Again, it follows quite necessarily that Cain's inordinate pride would cause him to be enraged when he is publicly rejected by God. 
And I say publicly because, again, if we put it in the context of the family, it's very sure we would, it seems very sure that Adam and Eve, that is, mom and dad are there. It would, it would be odd for, as the text says, um, in due time or in the course of time, when, when, when worship is to be had, offerings are to be brought. Uh, at that time in the seasonal calendar where someone brings their first fruits of this and their first fruits of that, that it simply would be a moment between out in the middle of nowhere between Cain and Abel. That, that would just be a bad way to read that. It, it very well would be a public situation, and the public at that time is largely your family. Um, and so Cain, as favored, comes, and here's Abel, and Cain is outright rejected. Publicly, in front of dad, in front of mom, his character at this moment, God reveals. And he has no regard for him. And the character of Cain is revealed in that his eyes take vengeance on Abel. Um, we talked about this a little bit in our house at, at times. Um, when correction takes place in the home, um, one person gets singled out for, uh, for uh, infraction in the home, right? Something transpires and dad begins to talk to one person. And you've experienced this in your life. Um, you experience it at work, probably just in the same kind of idea. But someone gets in trouble, and it's this weird relationship that now you enter into them, or enter in with them. You as disciplinarian, them as disciplinee, and in this weird way they're receiving your correction, you're correcting, and they're receiving, and you're in this moment. But what's the most intense about it, probably for a young life, and maybe even if we're honest with our own lives, is that there's other people standing around seeing it. So there's almost like less annoyance with the discipliner and more annoyance with the people who are watching me be disciplined. There's this, there's this way in which the object of my anger now becomes the people I might suppose will gloat over me. And that translates to Cain and Abel. Cain couldn't stand that Abel witnessed his public embarrassment. And he's more angry about the situation of being caught to then begin to attack the person who succeeded. One author comments this way. It says, quote, Cain could neither see nor hear his brother Abel and could not converse, eat, or drink with him. You see, Cain, and, and this is an important feature, I, I, I'm going to start winding down our time now together, um, I, I, but I want to draw it to a particular conclusion, so please hear as we consider Cain's character. It's important for us, and I want each of us to kind of look at our own character and, and, and examine it in light of this text, because it's important to see with Cain that he is not saddened by the exposure of his lack of faith in the ordeal. It's not his lack of faith that got exposed that he's upset about. He's angry for having gotten caught, especially in front of Abel. He brought the sacrifice apart from faith already. We know that by Hebrews 11. Because the reason Abel is commended 
is because he possessed faith. Abel just came, or Cain just came. And then it was exposed. You're just coming. You're just doing your thing. Trying to placate me. <clears throat> Practice faux obedience. <clears throat> I have no regard for that. Cain already knew that was the case. <clears throat> it's the embarrassment of having gotten caught that creates his rage. This gives way to a perennial question. It's been asked for ages. It will continue to be asked in every ethics course. And I'll ask it here for us to think about it long and hard in light of the Cain and Abel events. And that is simply this. Think about it in this context. If, you, if your immoral behavior, <clears throat> and so I'm speaking to you, listener, at this point. Think about it in this light with Cain. If your immoral behavior was not seen by anyone in the world, think about it for Cain. It's not what he did, it's that he got caught. If your immoral behavior was not seen by anyone in the world so that your reputation remained intact, how would you behave? Or maybe, in other words, we'd say, is your life of faith genuine? Or is it following a consensus so as to appear genuine? That's Cain. I'm following the seasonal consensus. The communal appropriate behavior is to bring a sacrifice. But he knew it was apart from faith. But it was better in the outcomes if he stays within the communal context and gets along. What if no one would see your immoral behavior? So as to change your reputation, you don't have to worry about getting along because nobody even knows. How would you then behave? Is faith the essence of your person? Allegiance to Christ, genuine and true and terminal, or is it simply instrumental? It's a way for you to get along without getting exposed. The final piece of the text is uh, what we see here with Cain. I'll read it, and then we'll simply conclude our time together. Verse 6 and 7, um, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? The important piece here at the end is this for all of us. Cain at this moment has a life-defining um, path to choose. God is here giving him, Cain, that is, an opportunity for repentance. Why is your face fallen? Why are you so angry? Let me ask you this. If you do well, that is, live according to faith as your brother Abel, if you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And when sin is confronted in our lives or exposed, we have this moment before the face of God. Will you do well? Don't get angry at the person who caught you. Don't get angry at the people who exposed you. Have a godly sorrow for your failure in faith. Repent and believe. Are you sorry, Cain? You simply got caught, and that's why you're angry. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then next week, we'll look at the way in which Cain then doubles down and fails to repent. Let's pray. Father, we